Hello and welcome to The Double Life. I'm John Booster, and uh, this is episode 10. Thank you for tuning in. I'm going to go into the intro in a second, but I want to start by just thanking you for listening to the show. We made it to 10 episodes. Thank you. That's my team behind me. They're clapping. That's for you. That's love. That's love for me, my team, to you, and and your team, if you have a team. I don't know how to word that, but thank you. Honestly, that's really what I'm trying to say. Thank you for listening. Ten episodes, it feels good, and uh, no no signs of slowing down. I hope that's cool with you. We're going to continue to bring you wonderful, cool stories. This episode is the 10th episode, and I'm going to continue to do them. Every Friday, we're going to bring you new episodes. The theme is whatever the hell I want it to be. I want you to be aware of that. And um, there might be some controversial shit. So other than that, thank you, you know. Hello and welcome to The Double Life. My name is John Bussar and this is episode 10. But you knew that already because I did the thing in the beginning and I'm sorry. This week I sat down with James Cates. He grew up in Arizona. He wanted to get away so he found a way to get away. He ended up in Germany. He went to England. He went to China and just kind of traveled and did what he wanted his whole life and it's commendable and it's amazing and there's a lot that we can learn so here it is my conversation enjoy well i'm i'm uh james cates i was born and raised in tucson arizona the one city all my life i just wanted to leave and finally did i grew up partly and mostly on the south side which is if you google the most dangerous small towns in america city of south tucson comes up uh, with the most violent crimes. I, uh, 4th Avenue is a border street. I grew up on 6th Avenue. So it was pretty, pretty interesting upbringing. Uh, I also lived up on the east side, which, funny enough, is where I got into most of my trouble uh, as, a, as a youth. Uh, a, lot more, a lot more drugs going on there. So it was, it was kind of an interesting little town to grow up in. Uh, and then uh, I always knew at some point I wanted to leave. I was in my fifth year of high school, not seeing any chance of graduating, not because I didn't have enough credits, but I didn't have the right credits because I wouldn't take the classes they wanted me to. And I left a lot and went down to the university instead. Then, um, anyway, so I joined the Army, ended up going into uh, Rangers, ended up in a special ops field, was wounded twice and decided that's probably not the right thing for me at 19. I got two warnings. That was enough. From there, I kind of instead of leading what I believe was a good and healthy, violent life, I decided that violence was not the way to go. Chose peace and uh, always trying to atone for my sins, as it were. And I ended up getting a degree in social work. Uh, work and actually ended up starting on a couple master's degrees, which I didn't finish and even got accepted into a PhD program. But I traveled around the world. The Army did get me out, took me the world a bit and then I, from there I did it on my own lived in a few different countries for different amounts of time have learned two languages fluently speak four more more or less and uh, partly growing up too I was um, ashamed of my background I was half Cherokee and half white and in third grade a teacher stood me in front of the class and said I shouldn't be treated differently everybody needs to know I'm, I'm an Indian boy and I'm not any less or worse than they are. And boy, did they take that message to heart and treated me pretty badly. So after that, I didn't tell anybody I was a Native American until high school when suddenly they did the little thing where you had to fill in your ethnic background and they didn't have one for mixed or other or anything. It was either you were white, black, Hispanic, or, or Native American or Asian. And that was it. I thought, that doesn't fit me. So I would write it in all the time that I was half. Hmm. And uh, anyway, that was pretty much it for me growing up. That's a quick and easy yeah. synopsis of my life. <laughs> totally. Did it, um, did it feel like when you were growing up, what were, I don't know, what was, I guess, the general group of people or friends that you would make? Was it just a mixed group of kids? Were they all predominantly from, you know, lower income houses and... Hmm broken homes as well, or was that something that was not 
super common or what did that whole like <laughs> environment look like? Yeah, that's a, that's actually a good question because the same funny thing was like my parents were divorced when I was very little. I was four. Uh, and I was the only one until junior high that, um, which is middle school, uh, that had a single parent. And I even had friends when I moved to the East side, it was a little bit better standard of living. I guess you'd call that middle class. And people, some kids weren't allowed to come to my house for my birthdays and things like that. Cause parents kind of shunned my mom because of that. And then on the South side, definitely low income. <laughs> and funny thing is a couple, about a year ago, I said to my dad, I said, boy, dad, you know, growing up, I never realized we were poor. And he looked at me and said, Oh, we were poor. <laughs> yeah. That's so it was just the life, but everyone around was pretty much the same. It was about 80%. Mexican population where I lived, where I grew up. And, uh, so there was a lot of, we, we all played together, but then when time came to it, we had to fight each other too, because we all had to stand our ground. So there was a lot of fighting. Yeah. Was it something that it did really come from at that young age? Was it even coming as like when you said stand your ground or whatever, was it, did it people divide up into groups and was it based off of race and different things like that? Yeah, some of it. Um, the funny thing was when, you know, we'd be playing and having a good time, but when it came to a fight, suddenly race mattered. Yeah. And then uh, th- it would be more to egg each other on, I think, than we really believed it or felt it. Plus, a lot of gangs there. And so that was part of it, too. And if you didn't belong to a gang, you were pretty much a target. Sure. And I, I didn't belong to a gang, but I had tough siblings and friends. And we, I guess we we're kind of our own gang without being one. Yeah, did it make it, I guess, did you have people that you could turn to as an outlet whenever you felt, you know, like you needed someone to talk to? Or was it, did that not come till you moved to, you said the east side was a little bit better. And then, I mean, you said from an early age, you wanted to move out of the whole state altogether. When did you finally find that, like, peace of mind that you felt like you were listened to and you can have someone to turn to? Well, I think I got I think I got lucky early on. My um I had my older brother who's fourteen years older than me, he's actually my half brother. So even back in the fifties my mother had already been divorced. Um and he was one of my idols growing up and he was such a great guy. He lived in California, so I would visit him as much as I could and he'd visit us and, and then my grandfather on my mother's side, who was actually her adopted dad, um, but he was as far as I knew, my grandfather and the one I loved and dearly and he he was a big support. They were my two main, main male role models. And then my mother was always open to listening to me. She was she had a great ear, and she gave me tons of her thoughts and advice, if you want to call it that, throughout life. Yeah. What well, uh, what were what was your brother into? What was he doing at the time? And what was something that he inspired you to do? Well, he was just genuinely a good person. He wasn't violent. He was smart. Um, he was fun. And he did a lot of fun things and he was very, uh, independent, which Mm -hmm. was great. He didn't have to ask anybody for things or rely on anyone. He just worked, did his thing and had a lot of great fun with motorcycles and surfing and, you know, camping and stuff like that. So it it was just everything about him and I could talk to him about anything and I still can today. So, yeah, that's super important. Did, uh, all those activities that you talk about, camping, motorcycles, traveling, all that, when did that become such a big part of your life? Because I know that's still a major part of your life, and I'm sure it had a lot to do with who you are as a person. Yeah, yeah, it actually, yeah, it models me a lot. As a matter of fact, if I don't get out and do something like this the other day, I had to take a long motorcycle ride, so I took about a 10-hour motorcycle ride just to clear my head. Wow, 10 and hours? I don't get, it, huh? 10-hour <laughs> yeah. ride? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I used to do endurance motorcycle riding where I'd ride 1,000 to 1,500 miles a day and for over a weekend ride three or 4,000 miles and come back and show up, leave Friday after work, show up Monday wearing exactly what I was Friday. Wow. <laughs> so crazy. That just helps me clear my head. And then uh, as far as camping and stuff, we always went camping because, again, we were we were poor. I mean, so – what do you do? You drive out into the mountains and camp somewhere, not even at a campground because you can't afford that. So we would just camp and play in the, in the streams and build things in the forest. And 
the deserts and stuff like that too. So that's always been a part of me and that's kind of how I still do it. Yeah. Did you think that it like contributed to you wanting to join the army or is that just uh, an escape for you to get no. away from where you were? Yeah, that was already a good escape, but I just, I was heading down a not great path in Tucson as a, as a teenager. And I thought, well, if I keep this up, I'm going to end up in prison or dead. And some of the people I was hanging around with at the time did both one or the other. Um, and so the army was just an easy way out to be honest. Yeah. And then what did that, did it live up to what you wanted to? Was it initially good to get away and then it kind of, <laughs> the reality of it set in and you were like, oh, this isn't actually that much better than where I was? Yeah, it was kind of, um, I always had a bit of a problem with authority, which is kind of funny. You join the military, that's what you're going to have to face. So I, 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 I have to say I begrudgingly did my job, but I did very well. Um, cause I figured I'm going to do something to do it well, even though I wasn't happy with the way things were run and treated. I mean, I ended up, uh, well, ranger school is very hard to get through and we were a special unit trying to test some things and stuff. And 160 of us started 139 finished, which is extremely high percentage. And I'm not bragging on myself saying I'm great and wonderful, but I did end up fourth out of that 139 who finished. Yeah. Awesome. But I always had, yeah, but I always had a bad attitude. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just did the job well. What what drove you to do it well, even though you weren't interested in being there and you didn't like it? Why why did you put in the effort? Why did you do so well? well? Again, I yeah, again, I think it's a lot of the influence. I I would say, even though my father was a very rough man to put it very lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did have a very good work ethic and my older brother I was talking about and my grandfather, they did too. And they instilled that in me. If you're going to do something, no matter what the price is or what you're doing, you do a good job. Yeah. And I just always wanted to, I was never a big overachiever and I was never very competitive. I mean, I played triple a baseball for a season hmm. And didn't like that very much either because of the politics and stuff got out. Sure. Um, and I didn't really care about winning. I just liked playing baseball. So it was fun. So I was good at it, I guess. And so I, I never had like this big competitive side. I just thought I enjoy it or I don't enjoy it. If I don't enjoy something, I walk away. And if I do, I keep doing it for a while. Yeah. Did it, after, how long were you there in the army? A couple of years or was it a long period of time? <laughs> Yeah, I like to tell people six and a half very long and tedious months. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I finished training, I went on live missions because that's what special ops does. And mm-hmm. I got, got wounded and that was it. Yeah. So. so then you came back to Arizona or did you go to California or did you said you... No, I went a lot of places. So I came back to Tucson originally and then I saved up enough money to get out and I went back to Germany and I lived in Germany then for eight and a half years. That's where I also ended up going to college and getting my degree in social work and child development. Interesting. So why why Germany? Um, well, that's where I was stationed, and that's where I'd lived, and I made friends with some really interesting people who were, I would say, by the, even today's standards, would be considered kind of radical. Hmm. And I always thought I was open-minded, and after just meeting them, I realized how closed-minded I was and how little I knew. And it intrigued me and I liked it and I wanted to be part of that. And so I went back there to be with them and do that and uh, ended up nannying for two years as an au pair because um, I couldn't get a work permit and that got me in and that got me in the system. And then I got into college and then, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I worked for a couple of years as a, as a social worker. So. And then how was Germany? I mean, you were there for the army. How was it there to be, a civilian and how did that compare to your life in the States and, you know, wanting to stay there as long as you did? Yeah, I would say that whole time was a huge pivotal moment for me. Um, I, in the army, you're definitely not in Germany. You are there physically, but you're, even though you can get around and do things, they teach you a little bit of German and stuff. It's not, you don't really ever be it because you're always a foreign foreign occupying force no matter what, even if you're there for good or whatever. And 
And so people do approach you and you approach them differently. When I went back just as what I personally call, you say civilian, that, that's, I'll stick with that. I call it as a normal human being. But oh, okay. yeah, <laughs> when I just went back on my own, I, um, and I already had made some German friends, then uh, I was really welcomed. They were very happy to have me back. And it was, uh, like I said, I just blended in and people were mostly good. I mean, part of it too was being a foreigner, obviously I had an accent and stuff like that, that kind of stuff. And then being American with the politics mixed in, I got, I got a lot of that. Uh, but part of it was learning how to deal with all that and, and talk about it. And I learned a lot about what it means for me personally, being an American too, but through that process. Sure. Do you want to talk on that? What did you learn as far as uh, being an American and everything? Um, well, you know, Americans are viewed different ways and we view ourselves different ways. And, and one of the things like I honestly believe this is the greatest country in the world. I still think it is a great country. We have done fantastic, amazing things and we continue to and we will continue to. Um, even under current conditions, I think that is part of us moving forward and creating something better. Uh, However, uh, I saw other things in other countries saying, wow, this is actually a little bit better than the way we do it. <laughs> and I had to admit that we weren't <laughs> the greatest country, right. but there are other great countries. And um, the education system was shockingly so far advanced from ours. I mean, in sixth grade, kids are doing calculus and trigonometry and stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, I can't even help these kids with their homework. And yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and and that was normal and accepted. And they sure. they study philosophy in school and uh, and you know elementary. I mean, the elementary years all the way through high school and things like that. I thought, wow, I felt kind of cheated. And I thought, man, if I had had been challenged like this, maybe I would have been better in school because mostly I was just bored with what they were teaching me. Yeah, did it encourage you to? You said you went to school there. So then, was your, I guess, approach to education and everything? Did it change completely from what it was in the States? Oh, yeah. I got so excited about learning. And then part of it, too, you know, you start seeing things that are historical and you think, oh, wait, I remember reading about that. I heard about that in school. Let me read some more. Let me find out about this. So now it was coming alive to me. Mm-hmm. Plus, I have all these people around me who were actually treating me like someone intelligent, which I only, I mean, I wasn't treated like I was stupid by people who mattered, but um, I just wasn't really because I was such a goof off, people uh, didn't really take me seriously, I guess. And I didn't take myself seriously. Mm-hmm. So here are these people treating who are really smart, treating me like I'm smart. I'm like, or smart enough for them. Uh, kind of challenged me. Then I said, okay, I better, I better get up to par. So I started really enjoying, I always read. I've always been a reader my entire life. That was always my escape. Um, and so I, I just started reading other things that I hadn't read before, more difficult things and even textbooks and classes on logic and math and philosophy and things like that. And I, by the time I got to college, I think a German college, I think I was pretty much ready for it. <laughs> yeah. What were you uh, reading as a young young boy in Arizona or kind of the books that you were picking um, up? Oh, God, all kinds of things. My mother used to tell a story where she said she actually got a little worried about me. I was, I was six years old, first grade. We moved a lot. So I, I actually attended, uh, well, we moved 14 times. I attended 12 different schools because we moved back in the same district area a couple wow. of times. So I was in 12 different schools by the time I didn't graduate. And then, um, but I was six years old, came in one night, she was a reader and she's up late reading. And I said, mom, my, uh, head is full. And my stomach is empty. <laughs> so she made me a little snack. She said, well, eat a little snack. Why don't you pick a book there? And I saw this book with a bird on it. And I thought, oh, that looks cool. A little blue and white book with a bird on it about seagulls. And it was Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Mm. And I started reading that. And uh, apparently my brother and sister were wondering and bugging me about reading. What am I reading? I sat down and I finally explained it to them. And my mom was a little worried because she said I was talking about the philosophies of life that were being taught in it, and I was six years old. So, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> so anyway, I, I read a big range of books. I read I read anything that was about nature and outdoors and things like that. I read all the you know uh, Jack London's everything from him, and and as and then and then by the time I was in high school, I was already looking at uh, you know. Uh, 
Jack Kerouac and and all the beatnik writer, writers and uh, Hunter S. Thompson was one of my big ones and mm-hmm. told yeah. me told me I can get out in the world. I can do it and I don't have to have money to do it. So Totally. Did you draw, um, I guess all those writers do have an influence from like the outdoors and sort of tie into what you're talking about too as far as like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know, a little bit more of a lifestyle on the fringes, which I think is like important. And it is, yeah, I guess maybe wasn't portrayed as much when you were younger reading books. And then... Yeah, I mean, Kerouac, like, on the road and all these books and, you know, the Beatnik, Ginsburg and different writers like that that came out that kind of, was it the first time that you saw maybe yourself being portrayed in these art forms? Yep. Matter of fact, I, uh, okay, I was going way back, but I was in third grade. I decided, man, I'm going to go hitchhike across the country. (laughs) So I took off and didn't make it very far and People, someone picked me up and decided, you're only a kid. You're going back to, we'll take you back home. And it was getting late and dark and I was hungry. So I thought that wasn't too bad of an idea. So they did. And I uh, did something similar when I was 11. I actually just took off walking and walked across the city of Tucson, which was pretty far, about 20, 25 miles, I guess. Ended up at my dad's house. (laughs) So I just always thought, well, you can always go somewhere. So... And that led you to Germany. And then you were there for, mm-hmm. you said, eight and a half years. So you did yep. a decent amount of living there. You went to school there. Did you find, like, graduate, find a job? and? Yep, like, did all that. I worked there. But one of the things that did for me, too, was, again, it was in, I was there in, uh, well, 85. I got out of the Army in January 85. And so I went back in April. And I was there until the early 90s. I was there for the wall coming down and all that good stuff. And one thing, though, that at the time, it was very common to hitchhike. You saw a lot of hitchhikers everywhere. I mean, it was free. It was easy to get somewhere. You just camp or sleep wherever. And so I ended up traveling all over, went all uh, all over Europe doing that. And every chance I got, every minute I had away. And, and that's when I discovered my real love of the mountains. First time I saw the Alps, I almost fainted. I, they were so amazing. So I, I used to climb. Uh, in Tucson, there's a lot of climbing. And so I did climb and stuff. But I never really hiked and stuff like that and went up big mountains and summited things and stuff like that. So that's when I found the love for that. Yeah. Did you so, have a connection with nature based on your roots as, um, said being 50, 50% Native American, did you have, when you were growing up, did your parents talk about that? Was it something that was talked about? Did you have this connection with nature and the outdoors and all that from a young age? Yeah. Funny thing, yes. Um, so growing up native was kind of fun. It was funny. It was a bit, it wasn't cool like it is now um, to be mixed race or, or or exciting. It was actually kind of shameful in a way, and especially when my parents were kids. Um, then my dad's side of the family denied all of the native stuff. My mother's, and my mother embraced it. Um, she taught us some of the language and she taught us things that she learned from her grandparents. Her grandparents were actually survivors from the Trail of Tears. Wow. So she was um, the one that was native and your father was not. No, my father's native too. Both my parents are actually oh, half. Got so, it. Yeah. But they bo- your father's family was not a fan of that and didn't like it? No, no. They They had some bad experiences and so they just started denying that they were. And, um, and they, even to this day, we had a family reunion a couple of years ago and, and that side of the family, and they all said, a bunch of them were saying, no, no, no. And I said, well, I went and registered with a tribe out in Oklahoma. So I think that we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but your mom anyway, was, yeah, was kind of funny. Yeah. But your mom was more <laughs> open to talking about it and teaching you guys and. Oh Yeah. Yeah, she was she was open, and that's and that was when in third grade I told the teacher because my mom had been telling us stuff, and and me always being a little bit of a I don't know an actor, not minding being in the spotlight. She said, "Oh, save that for after lunch, and we'll talk to the class about it." I thought I was going to get up there and get to sing a song or something. I'm a terrible singer, but I didn't care. Yeah, and uh, talk some of my language and things like that. And uh, but instead, she just put me up there and said, "He's no different than any of you. Don't treat him differently. He's an Indian boy. He's this and that." And I felt really ashamed. Wow. 
Did it feel um, like your trust for people kind of was diminished at that point too? Did you have a different, I guess, view on people and trust and authority figures at that time? Did it kind of start at that age? I Probably, yeah. I would say I, gave, I became much more guarded after that. And I will say it lasted, you know, well, you hit puberty and you're afraid of everything. So um, I would say it. And in, and in the army, you got to really guard yourself even more. And people just look for your weaknesses. Yeah. And then um, I would say it took me a while to get back where I was like, you know what? I never really cared that much what people thought about me, even at a young age. But then some things, when it actually hurt me, then I would avoid it. And later on, I didn't care. I was like, you know what? I am who I am. And um, nobody's opinion matters at all. Sure. Yeah. Well, and and I want them to believe and live how they want to, mm-hmm. but I want that for myself as well. Yeah. Did it change when you were living in Germany? Did everything, I don't know, the people that you were meeting and talking to, did your whole approach to people and society, did that all change as well? Did you see like the kinder and more gentle side of the world to an extent instead of the cruel? Uh, Mm-hmm. So the cruel, crueler, harsher side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I think so. Yes, but there was there was still violence and things like that, and um, um, kind of funny because I don't, I don't need to wax too political, but right now with the whole criticism or support for the Antifa movement, a lot of my friends in Germany in the eighties were already Antifa, and uh, I never agreed with them with their use of violence for purposes. And I don't know if I can, if it matters if I say this or not, but Antifa are not looters and things like that. They don't go and hurt innocent people and bystanders. They specifically target government things like police and all that kind of stuff. And I just never agreed with, I did go to protests and stuff like that. And I actually was a speaker on a couple of forums for some political issues and, and, um, in Germany, and but I, I never condoned the use of violence, and so very, very dear friends of mine, we still have those discussions. Yeah, <laughs> I, just, I do understand their point, mm-hmm. and I and I I do get it, and I I just personally for me that's not my path. Sure. Did you find that you got more political or more aware of like politics and government and stuff when you went to Europe? Oh yes, yeah. It's such a or at least in the world I was in, it was such a big part of everyday life. And what I discovered there, which was, even though people are really at odds with each other politically, they can still hang out and talk to each other okay and not hate each other, which always here, it was always this divisive thing and it's got so extreme now, it's ridiculous. But um, I, I found that interesting. Like, wow, I can actually have a conversation with this person who's very different than me politically and we're all right. Mm-hmm. Did it open up like a different way of thinking that you brought back to you with you over here? Did it, I guess, did he come back here and go, hey, like, this is how I continue to live? Or did he come back here and suddenly you're doing things like you were back then? No, I never went back to where I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, once once real change happens, it's it's there. One of the things is I found harder i was gone i actually was gone 10 years altogether and um uh with the army and i was living a year in china and half a year in australia before i came back here um and i just felt like i i don't really fit in anymore and they can't relate to me but i can still relate to them if that makes sense because they haven't been out they haven't seen the things i've seen they haven't experienced what i experienced they don't know how other people really think. And a lot of people would ask me, oh, the Germans hate us, don't they? Or the French hate us. Is it? No, they don't hate us. They love love us. They just don't like our politics. Mm-hmm. And they and they separate. the. They make the difference. And those are some of the things that I noticed. And I, I had a bit of a hard time adapting back to American life, I have to say. Sure. I think before we touch on that, do you want to talk about um, China and how why... You went there, <laughs> I ended up there, and um, what that experience was like. 
and how that was probably completely different. I mean, to go from Arizona to Europe is probably completely different. And then to go from Europe to China is probably like a whole different. Different universe. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Especially in 1992. Um, Because China had only opened in 1986 to the outside world again. And so it's only been six years open and it's still a lot of really closed places. And, and, um, yeah, I just, well, it was funny. My mom said when I was a kid, I was digging a hole in the backyard. She said, what are you doing? This big old hole. And I said, I'm going to dig down to China. And I don't know. I always thought China was a fascinating place with the Silk Road. I read about Marco Polo when I was young and things like that. And I thought, wow, and Genghis Khan mm-hmm. and, uh, the different dynasties, the big ones and stuff and all the, you know, they invented so many things. I thought, Man, I got to go see the wall and all these things. So when I was in Germany, I was, it was funny because I still have good contact with the family I was au pair with. And um, as a, that's a nanny, a foreigner working as a nanny. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the the mom told me on the last visit I did when I was in Germany visiting, she's laughing. She said, my God, I remember when you bought that horse and you were going to ride it to China. And I did. I actually bought a horse in Germany and I thought I'd train it well enough that I could actually ride overland to China. Wow. Didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome that you're like, yeah, yeah I'm going to do it. Wow. Yeah, it, it, yeah that did happen though. No. Awesome. Anyway, so I, uh, I ended up then with a girlfriend who was very dear to me and she was studying something different, but because of my love for China, she switched over to China studies and Sinology uh, and she got a scholarship to China for two years. So I used that as my, I guess, excuse to go. And I went overland, though, still. I went over uh, what used to be Soviet Union and Russia and everything into Mongolia and worked my way down finally to China. And when I got there, it was was a very strange, different place. And I ended up uh, signing up in university and started – I learned – acupressure massage while I was there. I worked worked in the hospital learning massage there. Hmm. So it it was a pretty fascinating place for me. Sure. What were the biggest differences from, I mean, you did a lot of research and you learned about the area right before you went and you were fascinated with it. You said you were studying it in college and almost majoring in it. So you did a bunch of research on it, but then you, to mm-hmm. actually go there, was it a whole different experience altogether? Oh uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> the reality of it was so different. I mean, you're reading all the wonderful things and all the cultural things and all this stuff and you get there and now they've been you know, 40 some years under this very oppressive rule. I mean, I know it was communist, but to me it was more fascist than communist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and the people were kept pretty, I mean, they still had like an 80% illiteracy rate and it was hard to break in and get to know them. I mean, and the fact that I was even learning Chinese and it's funny because I'd go with people and ask them directions and they would say to me, I'm sorry, I don't speak English. And I said, well, no, I'm speaking Chinese to you. And they said, yeah, we know, but we don't speak English. Because for them, it was such an odd concept to have this foreign person speaking their language. It didn't fit in their world. So simple things like that that we kind of take for granted that there are other languages that people who speak them. And people come to America, everybody has to learn English. So yeah, we hear accents and things, but we can still talk to them. We don't assume we can't. Mm-hmm. Things, just weird little things like that are people, you know, you'd sit down some of these little out towns and stuff to eat. Suddenly you have you know, 50 to a thousand people crammed around you just watching you eat or going to the bathroom. They just jam in just because they want to see what you do and how you do it. So, yeah. yeah, So those things, those things are a little weird, but, and and there were other things too. They have, they have different approaches to things like they don't view animals the same we do, like all the animal protection stuff. They just say, Hey, it's either food or a pet Mm -hmm. and you treat it accordingly. So what were, were just, what were the intentions going to China in the first place? Was it to follow your girlfriend and kind of like educate and learn about the place or was, did you want to actually try to live there? Um, no, originally, I mean, way before I ever met her, it was, uh, it was, it was just a fascination with a, a, a radically different culture than mm-hmm. anything I've ever experienced. And I like, I, I really enjoy being challenged. I like it when I'm wrong and proven wrong. Um, and after my experience in Germany, which turned me completely around from the way I thought, like sure. I said, I thought I was open-minded, but I realized how closed-minded I was. I thought, well, 
what better way to really challenge myself than being somewhere that is completely different. Mm-hmm. And I was just fascinated with that. Yeah. And then you did acupuncture. Did you learn any sort of other, uh, like, uh, was it not acupuncture? Was it something else? No, it was acupressure. It was acupressure. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, what got same you into point, that? Same concept as acupuncture. That would have been my next step if I had stayed, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And then what, what made you want to do that or why did you want to learn it? Was it uh, Eastern medicine at the time? Was it something that was super out there? Well, well actually, I've been um, it's kind of weird, but I come from a pretty long line of shamans, I guess you'd call them, or I don't know what you call them, <laughs> witch doctors, whatever, uh-huh. <laughs> and and uh, a long line of healers and stuff like that. So I went in for a massage because I had injured myself, and I liked what it did to me. And so I talked this to the doctor China? there about it. Hmm? This was in China? Yeah, yeah, I went into the hospital. You get a prescription, you just go and stand in line and wait, and you get in the massage section of the hospital, and mm-hmm. they do whatever's on the prescription. And and I, I thought, wow, I like this. I wonder if I could do this. And I talked to him about it, and he tested me out and said, yeah, I'll teach you. So he did, and I signed up in the, for the classes and stuff like that. And, and uh, yeah, just from there, I just felt right, and I felt good, and I I, I like what it did, and I like what I do with it. So Yeah. Were you fluent in Chinese at this time? I wouldn't say fluent. I got along. Yeah. And you were able... By, by the time... Hmm? I'm just curious as to how you were able to convince him to teach you. What made him think... Well, like, yeah, well he, luckily, he spoke English really well. Mm. And, um, um, and there was another doctor working there who spoke English really well, too. And... and um, but I was learning Chinese. So between my, my learning Chinese and his, his good English, I was able to learn things. And, and my, my Chinese improved. By the time I was there, about six to eight months, I was able to converse normally. Got it. Was it was Buddhism and everything a big thing at that time, or was it not? Was it separate, oh. and was it in... I guess it was... Wasn't that a completely yeah, different area at the time? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Well, no, no. Buddhism is kind of it's kind of funny because under communism, of course, there is no religion, mm-hmm. um, and yet the Buddhist temples are there, and all the different uh, factions of Buddhism are there, uh, and the Zen, the Taoist, all the all the, the different ones, and people do practice it, but they're not fanatic about it. It's kind of like, well, it's just part of their culture more than it is an actual practice unless you're in, uh, you know, actually in a monastery, a monk or a priest or something like that. And I did actually visit a couple of monasteries. I was way out, uh, West China, right on the, what used to be Tibet, but is now part of China. And then is not what is now Tibet. Tibet was much bigger then. Yeah. And it's in, I was, I was in the town called Shaka and it was the second biggest, Yellow Hat Monastery, which is the same monastery as the Dalai Lama, the same sect as the Dalai Lama. So I actually met some monks there and hung out with them for a couple of weeks, and, and they got me in the temple and did a lot of stuff with me. It was pretty pretty interesting because wow. it was their way of life. I mean, that's all they did all day long is work and, and, and pray and meditate and study and things like that. So yeah. it was... And they were able to have the monasteries and everything up, was it not shunned upon? Because it wasn't there, it was a massive situation with the Chinese, like, government and Tibet and the Buddhists and everything. It was huge, wasn't it? So then there wasn't there a big rift between them? (laughs) There was, but um, it's so far away from China that, um, and, you know, everybody just kind of live and let live. There was also, like in the town of Shaka, there's also a very big... uh, Muslim mosque because that area is oh. very close to like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, there's actually an area where you get by with Turkish better than Chinese. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of Muslims there too, and they just lived hand in hand right next to each other. And because it's so far away from the main thing, I think they got away with it a little better. And since 1986, um, when Deng Xiaoping took over after Mao Zedong died, um, 1986, they opened up the country and they also in that time, Mao Zedong died in 1976, but um, 
in those 10 years, he started the reforms Deng Xiaoping and started allowing religion. Um, they did try to squash the yellow hats a bit more because of wanting to take over Tibet. But as far as like practicing, uh, I personally did not see any restrictions for them. Yeah. What was your, or what is your approach to religion throughout? Like, I guess you've had different spiritual strings being tugged, mm-hmm. you know, in your life and just be yeah. curious where, what avenue you ended up going down or if you went down multiple different avenues to end up where you are. Um, I, I did. I, I was searching a lot all my life and I realized, I, I always say if it comes really push to shove and someone to ask me and really want me to give them a definition, I would say, well, I would say I'm, my foundation's Christianity. That's what I grew up with, but I'm, think I'm more of a, a Gnostic existentialist anarchist than I am anything else. Um, I think I believe everybody needs to believe what they believe. And I think they're all valid. And I have found through looking at all the different religions as much as I could, that they're all pretty much intertwined. And a lot of them have the same foundations and the same basis and that they're not actually that different as we like them to be in spite of having wars and everything for centuries over all of our beliefs, um, even within, you know, you got the Shiites and the Sunnis, you got the Catholics and the Protestants uh, fighting each other and killing each other for a long time. And it's just, it's just, that never made sense to me, even when I thought I was going to be different with it and stick to one thing. And I realized, I don't know that, I, I, I believe if, if there truly is a God in charge of everything, I believe that God is a lot bigger than any one religion. So I don't know that any one alone is right. So people just need to believe what they believe. And as long as they're not doing harm in the world, I think they're doing good. Once they start doing harm, then you have to look at it again and say, well, what is this? Sure. Is this really something I want to be a part of or supportive of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. There, yeah, yeah, there isn't a single religion I've ever heard of in the world that said, yeah, we got to go out and do violence. Right. No. For sure. And I think that has to do with like, you know, other entities coming into the mix, whether it's political or, you know, other socioeconomical forces that contribute to the religious leaders within those institutions and blah, blah, blah. But um, do you think that what's your relationship with like music and arts? And, you know, I think that's been a big part of your life as well. Right. And writing specifically and songwriting. Yep. Yep. I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, I used to do a lot more songwriting and writing than I do now. Um, I've been published in very minuscule fields, short stories, some editorials, some commentary things. And uh, actually, I had a, a couple songs that went pretty far with some bands. And in Germany, again, I met a lot of musicians in the few people I was with. There were a lot of more musicians. And uh even sang for a punk band one time at a concert that was so bad because I really am not a singer, but they wanted me to, so I did. <laughs> were you doing music before <laughs> that, or was it the first time you were introduced to that? Uh, no, no, I actually was in choir when I was younger and stuff. I you know, grew up this tough kid, and I took choir and dance and everything. I always thought I'd like to be a dancer, and yeah. I just never had the drive or the commitment to anything. And then, um, so, yeah, music has always been huge for me. I... I I love all sorts of music. I don't have any one specific one that I'd say that's it. That's all I listen to and everything has merit. And, I, and that's the thing in Germany I learned too was uh, really to appreciate some music I'd never even heard or thought of before. And and then from then on, not just in Germany, I mean everywhere from then on, I tried to look and see what different kinds of things I can be. And as far as art goes, I've always, um, I was always pretty artistic. My older brother was an artist I say was because just because he doesn't practice anymore and um, I used to do paintings and drawings and things like that and I had a severe motorcycle accident in 2005 with a severe brain injury my brain was hemorrhaging for seven and a half months and I lost certain things one of those things I lost was my artistic ability completely hmm. so I can't draw anymore <laughs> it's kind of strange Damn. what did that what did <laughs> that do initially How- what were the first couple of like days of feelings that went um, through your head? Well, I, I had compl- I had complete memory loss. Oh, geez. And 
uh, not from old things, but you know, current memory. And, and I used to have a, not a photograph memory, but a picture perfect and audio perfect memory. If I've seen it and heard it, I will remember it hmm. no matter what. And even friends of mine had seen me for a long time when they realized I couldn't remember anything. And so I, 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 and I couldn't draw. I mean, I tried to draw a box or something. I couldn't do it. And so I said, I told myself, I'm going to give myself one year. I told everyone I was working in mental health at the time in Tucson as a trainer for the Southern Arizona mental health system. And I told everyone, I said, if this does not markedly improve within a year, my quality of life is low enough that I do not want to continue living. And I did get into some really good therapy and stuff. I think being in the mental health system helped because I knew people to ask what I should do. And, and I did improve a lot in a year. And, and so a little bit of memory issues sometimes. The right, drawing thing's gone. I can live without that. Um, some concentration things and occasional occasional seizure or something here and there, but not very often. Every few years, I guess now. Yeah. So I live with it. I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> no worse than all the other things I've got. <laughs> yeah. What do you think was the biggest uh, like contributing factor to your improvement? What do you like think was a major thing? You know, as people say, like listening to music or different things that trigger memories or emotions and different things like that. Was it mm-hmm. that sort of situation or was it completely different? Is that just from movies? No, no, that, that helped. I mean, I would, it's really funny listening to very loud music, which I have a pretty severe hearing loss. Um, hmm. But um, listening to music loud, going into like, cinemas and the theaters and stuff and having the darkness and the sound and the concentrated light that helped. Um, but the biggest thing that I will say helped and got me there was a thing called neuroocular therapy that I did. And it was using the eyes and eye movement muscles and the light and different things to, um, invigorate the brain muscles. Yeah. And it was, it was amazing. It was really amazing. Yeah. What is that Very exactly? But it was amazing. Um, well, like I said, they're just different exercises they have you do with your eyes that will trigger certain things in your brain to help the cells rebuild and stuff like that and also to reteach your brain how to work around this damaged area basically or to help it improve. Um, and some of the things they did like uh, not letting me get tunnel vision or go cross-eyed so I had little blockers on my glasses to keep my eyes apart actually. And that was amazing using my peripheral vision a lot more and far sight. And, and again, there were specific exercises and things like that. It was, it was amazing. It worked really, I would, I would argue that was probably 75% of my recovery. Yeah. What changed as far as, and if this is too personal, uh, we can skip it. But as far as thinking that if your life didn't improve, you know, within that year, then your life wasn't worth living. What changed as far as, was it the improvements that you saw or did your lease on life change altogether? I have a couple, I have actually a couple of things. One was, um, my, yeah, I improved enough and I'd given myself one year. And within that year I improved enough. I saw memory coming back really strong. Saw a lot of things working. I wasn't having as many seizures, things like that. So stuff was working. So I was like, okay, this is working. I'm going to continue. And then um, I suddenly thought, you know what? It's a big old world out there, and I'm here in Tucson again and didn't even mean to be there that long. And so I decided I'm I'm going to move to England. <laughs> oh, okay. So I quit my, quit my very good job and moved to England. Man, why England? What's the connection here? You didn't no, have an no army connection. base there. You just did it. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, was, right. uh, actually, actually, the truth was, I, I started a consulting business and training and training design and development training trainers and stuff like that on the side. And I thought I want to go back to Europe. I just wanted to go back and live in Europe again. And I was going to go to Germany, but with Germany, I'd have to go back in my field with mm-hmm. social work and stuff like that for a visa. Whereas in England, the opportunities as a consultant were were better. And since I speak German fluently and English fluently, I thought, well, those two are the most practical. Um, countries and so I and I went and stayed in both countries and looked at options and stuff for a little while and I decided England was the best option yeah cool so where in uh, England did you end up London 
London, cool. Yeah, London. Right yeah, on. London was great. Nice. <laughs> and then you did uh, consulting over there. Was that the mm-hmm. plan? Just yeah. First, yeah. First, I did consulting, and then um, then my visa was questionable, so I got a job. Actually, it's really funny. I got a job in a school because over there you have you have a couple different levels of graduation in high school. Most European countries you do, you can get a degree from different levels. And so the one school I went to was a special training center for kids who were failing every, everything. And it gave them another option. So, and it was in East London where a lot of gangs are, a lot of rough neighborhoods, similar. I didn't feel very different than my neighborhood I grew up in with the kids. And yeah, I think cool. kids recognized it too. Sure. <laughs> Did you see a direct connection with the kids there, obviously? And did it feel like you were almost helping, I don't know, like a younger version of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I I related really well to a lot of the kids. And a lot of the people, there were a lot of good people working in this institute. I mean, it was great. And, uh, but most of them came from more privileged backgrounds than I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And certainly none of them were violent and had the violent background. And, but, some of the kids, I mean, these were rough kids. These were, these were rough kids and they were teenagers. And I remember one of the kids one day says to me, uh, Hey, mister, you, uh, you, you, you know, the streets, don't you? I said, why would you say that? He goes, we can tell, we can all tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we listen to you. <laughs> That's good then, man. That was I kind mean... of funny. Yeah, it was great. We had a good time. So you did that for a while or was that just a small? I did. No, I did that for the funny thing. I was, I thought I was hired as a life skills teacher and it ends up, I was hired as a math and English teacher. Hmm. So are you kidding? First of all, American being hired as an English teacher in England is a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> and my math background wasn't super strong, Sure. <laughs> wow. but all right, I did it mm-hmm. and did pretty well with it. And then, um, so you're teaching out of school at this six, time. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was like an, uh, I guess kind of like what we would call a charter school. Mm. It was an alternative school. It worked with directly with the school system, though. It was a little bit different than it's run here, but that's the closest I could say to it. And then, uh, yeah, through that, I was still doing my consulting work at the time. And and then I got through my consulting work. I actually got hired as a senior manager on a uh, $2.2 billion global advertising account. (laughs) Wow. I've never worked in advertising before. <laughs> why do you why do you think they put you on that project? Um I was help I was helping with some of the the team building and stuff and it was a brand new very big account under a brand new system and there was a lot of complications with it especially the global international communication um there was some stuff not working so well and I was helping them with that and they're like, "Hey, you know what? Do you want to come in and be our like troubleshooter guy?" And I said, well, "If the money's right." And, Give me a title, maybe. Yeah. And I did. So I said, all right. Cool. Nice, man. So you stayed in London for a while then? Four and a half years. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And then you eventually, where did we end up after that? Um, I was on my way to Bali to teach English and be a scuba instructor. Hmm. And I was in Australia, though, for a few months first. And then my brother was begging me to come here and he had moved to Laguna Beach and I always thought, man, I'd love to live in Laguna Beach. It's such a great place. Yeah. And he was there and he had his construction business and I've been doing construction on and off all my life because that's what my dad did and taught me. And and so I thought, he said, oh, you'll come here, man. We'll earn a lot of money and you can go back and have money. And I thought, all right, I'm kind of broke, so why not? So I landed here with 10 bucks in my pocket, literally, and went to work and I'm still here nine years later. <laughs> so how's everything been i mean you're you and your brother still keep in touch do you keep in touch with any other family members back in arizona oh yeah yeah i'm I'm pretty close to my dad my brother my sister i'm really close to my sister she she went through a lot through her life and and uh, we we really grew closer Mm -hmm. i was just wondering did they see you moving were you one of the only people that were just constantly moving around and how did your like siblings and your parents see that? Um, my dad always thought I'd get it out of my system and come on home and stop my vacation. Mm -hmm. Uh, my mom encouraged me and my, so I have a younger brother and older sister with the same parents. Uh, my older brother loved it. He thought it was great that I was doing what I did. And then, um, 
and they kind of, they just stayed in one place. I mean, my sister had kids early on and, and my brother pretty much stayed in Tucson almost all the time. And, and there, there was, you know, again, there's a disconnect. You go around and you change, you experience all these things in the world and you come back and nobody can really relate to you too much because you're this totally different person, but they want to treat you like you were when you left because that's all they remember. Yeah. So it was kind of like a superstar status when you first come back. Whoa, Uncle Jim's here. My brother Jim's here and stuff. And, and then, um, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a little weird. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, uh, so there's some resentment and stuff like that that happens and you go through and, and, and there are phases when you can't really relate to each other. Sure. But we've, we've all grown up and got, got much better at that. Yeah. And now you you're staying in Laguna, right? So that's a pretty mm-hmm. open-minded, progressive area. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. it's one of the reasons I always thought I could live there. <laughs> right. So is that something that I mean has that changed your mindset of where you want to live? Does it need to be? I don't know. I guess you've lived in all kinds of surroundings, right? People that are closed-minded, mm-hmm. people that are open-minded, people you know, diverse areas, not so diverse areas. So. You know, mm-hmm. in your time living in all these different parts of the world with all different kinds of people, what's the main takeaway of like your view on the human race? I love the human race. They're my species. They're wonderful, incredible. All of our fallible, difficult sides and horrible things we do, especially to each other and to the, it just sickens me and saddens me what we do to the environment. Um, and to the, to this beautiful earth of ours, cause I love the earth so much, but, um, overall I, I do really love my species. Um, and I, I used to teach a, 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 a cultural diversity class. I would start out by telling everybody that I am, I am a racist mm. and I am, a, by that, I mean, I am a human racist. I love the human race. <laughs> and I'm supportive of it in all of its fallibilities and all of its weaknesses and all of its strengths and beauty. Um, having said that, I have also decided early on that I am only going to surround myself with people who I've, I do have a choice who is with me and around me and who I'm going to work with. And I have a handyman business, my own business that I developed into. And I do that with my customers too. I mean, there are plenty of customers, people who are not my customers because I don't think we're a good, a good fit. And I, no matter what the circumstances are, if I'm broken, I really need the work or whatever. It's just not worth it to me anymore to feel negative either from me to them or other people to me not just in work, but in life and everything. And I think, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to keep and create a positive atmosphere and, and social circle for, for myself. And hopefully that will also be for them. Yeah. Saying how much I love the human race and all the things I do recognize that there are many, many ugly things out there and damaging and negative things. And I don't, I'm not all, bright-eyed bushy-tailed ignore that i do in different ways try to try to combat that but um i i still will avoid it as much as i can and keep safe and healthy around me yeah do you think that your all the different places that you've traveled um do you do you see yourself traveling more and going to other places or do you think you're just gonna kind of settle down here oh. for a while. <laughs> no, I got, you know, I, I, uh, one time I, I, someone asked me how many countries I've been in and, and I never had a Facebook account and Facebook used to have this thing called where I've been. And you put in how many countries you've been in in different places. And I ended up with something like 14% of the earth. And I thought, my God, I've got 86% to go and I'm already in my forties. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, no, I always look for something new and I want to experience new things. And I'd like, so I didn't expect to be here nine years. I had expected, you know, I never lived anywhere more than four, about four and a half. Mm-hmm. And then I move on. So, um, this is, this is a long time for me to live somewhere. And, but I, I definitely get out and do as much as I can. And there's a big old world out there that just at my feet. And I just got to take it when I can. And I'm now I, I still have plans to see a lot more of it. Yeah. What are your, 
like goals for the next couple of years? Uh, okay. So one thing I did do in the good American fashion is I, I got a lot of debt when I came in here and like I said, I was broke and I jumped on the few things I shouldn't have maybe. So I'm almost paid it off. Got about you know, a couple thousand more to go. And once that's paid off, then I'll feel a bit freer to start saving and make my choices. But I'm, I'm looking at a few different things. Alaska has always fascinated me. I thought what it would be like to live way up in the north, Fairbanks or in part of the north for a whole year and experience all the changes in the dark all the time and the light all the time. And uh, that that whole culture up there fascinates me too. And then I thought too, maybe living on one of the islands somewhere, like I originally was going to Bali when I came here or something, I maybe something like that, which are pretty drastic extremes. Mm-hmm. But then there are other things huge parts of Asia I've never seen. And, and, um, and so I don't know, I don't have a specific plan, but I definitely want to go somewhere, but there's also, I've, I have been, since I've been here traveling around the U S a lot, especially the Southwest. And I went back to Maine and up into Canada, Prince Edward Island, things like that. And I saw a lot of things I didn't see before. I thought, man, this country has so much to offer. And I, and I, I'm skipping it. So I'd, I'd like to also in the next year see more of it mm-hmm. Yeah. before I just leave, leave it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think that, um, I don't know, everything going forward as far as like the outdoors and all that, do you see any big advances as far as going out and doing more outdoor stuff too? Hmm. Well, yeah, I always, um, I don't think I'll ever not include outdoors things. I mean, I'm, I'm 55 now and I wonder, well, well, do I have restrictions? Of course, you know, I'm a little bit more broken up than I was and don't move quite as well, but can I still do things? I mean, I've done some pretty heavy duty snowshoe trips, which I'd never done snowshoeing before and cross country skiing in the last couple of years. And, um, I don't think I'll climb anymore it doesn't really thrill me but i wouldn't mind doing a couple summits of some places see if i can do that and at least give it a whirl and then uh but i I don't think i i cannot imagine ever not being in the outdoors Hmm. do you think i just got i know what are you what are you gonna say i was gonna say i just get replenished i get energy i get it just makes me feel good. And, and every time a, a friend or someone close to me comes and they're having a hard time, I say, you know what? Pack up some camping gear, get out in the desert, get out in the mountains by yourself for a few days. Just go for a few days. Even if you just sleep in your car, who cares? Mm-hmm. Get out there. And every time they come back and say, my God, we're so glad we did that. Yeah, definitely. What are some, uh, I guess, some values and stuff that you've learned throughout your life that you would want to like, instill upon I guess people that are you know in their early 20s or something you know and starting and starting to make decisions on what they're going to do for the rest of their life do you have any like advice for them or well I'm, I'm pretty careful with advice because <laughs> they go do it it backfires like there I am or I'm the fault for it but um I know what you're asking and what I what I would say I don't care who you are what you believe what you think listen to people hmm. hear hear what's going on um, listen to what the world is telling you and and see it with open eyes and don't 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 narrow yourself because man we, we have such a capacity for so much beauty and good and and um, and there's so much excitement in life and look at look at those things and I kind of I, one of my little things I tell people often is if you think about how many car accidents you've been in and then you think about how many car accidents you've seen, how many people you know who've been in car accidents, how many car accidents you've even heard of, it probably doesn't come out to 10,000. But if you think about how many cars you drove a past in your lifetime where nothing happened, everybody was courteous, it flowed, it worked, it was fine, it probably comes in the millions. Yeah. And yet we concentrate on those few thousand times versus the millions of times it was good. That is so much stronger and better than the bad. So try to try to work on that. Try to look at the good that's going on in the world. Yeah, totally, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sitting down yeah. and talking to me, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Totally.
Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you sitting down and having a conversation or listening to a conversation between me and James Cates. If you enjoyed the episode or any of the episodes, head to the double and you'll get more information about all my wonderful guests. As always, please subscribe, tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is the best way to spread the double life love, which sounds weird, but it's probably not as weird as I uh, made it sound. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. I'll see you guys next week and enjoy your weekend or your what? Yeah. Weekend. Adios.